Live from Gloucester, this is The Saturday Breakfast Show with Darren Lester, and you are listening live. Good morning, everybody. A very happy bonfire night to you. We are talking positivity culture today. Are we too positive? Are we too negative? And what can we do to strike that balance? This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or join in the conversation by downloading the Podbean app and following Teachers Talk Radio. Hashtag TT Radio. I am ridiculously excited to have my own personalised intro, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Thank you very much to everybody at the TT Radio team involved in creating that, it's very cool. It is quite weird um, to, to hear myself announced in that way. I do have a background in performance, as, as um, friends of the show will know, I, I talk about it fairly regularly. Um, but of course, as a performer, you very rarely appear as yourself. Um, it's happened a lot more recently, particularly over the pandemic, as we were transitioning um, as actors, as singers, away from doing plays and skits and more towards doing concerts and things online. Uh, you, you start being introduced as yourself. But it is still very, very odd to me um, to, to hear me introduced as Darren. Uh, rather than just coming on and being a character, or, or indeed being introduced as Mr. Lester, um, as happens quite a lot to, to all of us involved in education. Um, but it is very cool. It is very cool. I do now have a, a career ambition ticked off of my list because I've got my own intro. I feel like I ought to play at the beginning of my lessons. Um, I might do a poll on Twitter to see who thinks that that is a good idea. Um, I think every single thing that I teach needs to be introduced with my theme tune now that I have one. And uh, my kids can just deal with that because it's important to me. It is a rather wet, grey, blustery November the 5th here in Gloucester today, which suits me down to the ground. I'm not going to lie, I am one of these winter people. Um, I like it so much more when the weather turns. To me, this feels like proper weather. To me, this feels real. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like we can experience winter a lot more than we experience summer. I feel like summer is all about doing stuff. Summer is all about being out and about and, and seeing people and, and, and doing activities. And you kind of close yourself off to the environments you are surroundings during the summer, I feel. Maybe that's just me. Um, but I do feel that in, in the wintertime, I feel a lot more connected to, to what's going on around me. You know, I can feel the, the cold more than I can feel the heat of the sun. I can, I can feel the hot coffee as I drink it. Uh, it it's a lot more experiential to me. And I, I, I quite like that. I like to experience things. Guy Fawkes Night is an interesting one. Um, over the last 20, uh, 30, I'm going to say 30 years now, and 
remind myself of how old I am depressingly, um, I feel like it's become less and less of a thing. I don't feel like in in England, or at least where, where I am down here in the Southwest, I don't feel like we get the same kind of celebration that we did when I was little. Uh, maybe that's because it is these days a celebration for children. Um, and as somebody who is not a child and is not a parent, um, maybe I don't see what there is out there. I don't see what's going on. But, you know, I remember being younger in the in the early 90s and children's TV would be interrupted with adverts about bonfire night safety, you know, about making sure that you kept away from the bonfire, making sure that you kept away from the fireworks, making sure that you wore your gloves when you were playing with sparklers and all that sort of thing. We would have assemblies about it at school. I, I, I actually quite looked forward to uh, the assembly before bonfire night or, or on Guy Fawkes Day if if we were at school on the 5th. Um, and, and it would always be something interesting, something a bit different. And our head teacher, the headmaster at my primary school, would always end with a warning, um, reminding us to, to stay away from the fireworks, to enjoy them, but not to get too close. Um, and with, with a, a wish that he would see us all in one piece the next day. And I don't feel that that is as much a thing anymore. Um, I don't think I've seen a toffee apple this whole year. I, I don't feel like, you know, I've been into a few supermarkets and I don't feel like I've seen a toffee apple. Uh, and they used to be everywhere. It's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's fading away. It's fading away. Maybe that's a result of COVID. Um, because, of course, while COVID was happening, there could be no... Um, public celebrations and a lot of them I've noticed have not really restarted and people before Covid I noticed were tending to to stop celebrating bonfire night at home and 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 start going to the public celebrations a little bit more. Uh, Tim has texted in good morning Tim always a pleasure to hear from you Tim is a longtime friend of the show and he was in fact my very first guest so I do love when he texts in and interacts and he says, I haven't seen the toffee apple for years. Where are they and who has them? That is a good question. That is a good question because it's not me. It is not me. And in fact, I'm going to be honest, I don't think I had thought about toffee apples for a long time until I watched Hocus Pocus 2 um, just before Halloween. And no spoilers, but toffee apples do feature quite heavily in the plot or in a, in a subplot of Hocus Pocus 2 and and I suddenly had this craving for one I think I'm easily influenced um I had this craving for a toffee apple that just hasn't gone away and I cannot find one I cannot find one if I were brave enough I would probably try and make one for myself but uh, that whole boiling point of sugar thing always always puts me off so as I was thinking about bonfire night um I kind of, that's not what my show today is about, of course. The show today is about positivity and positivity culture and, and negativity and how we can strike ourselves a balance. But it would be wrong to do a show on by Bonfire Night without recognising it. Um, and, and as I was thinking more about it, as I was reflecting more about it, I was wondering if perhaps it's a positive thing that Bonfire Night is starting to fade away, that Bonfire Night is starting to, to come out of the the UK zeitgeist. Um, it is a negative, of course, as I mentioned last week on the show, um, we don't 
have that many celebrations in the UK. Um, I mean, England specifically. They all tend to be crowded at this time of year because, as I said last week, we lurch quite quickly from Halloween into Bonfire Night, then into Christmas, then into New Year, and then nothing until Easter, and then Easter it's fallow again through until Halloween. And that's just about it, really. So, you know, if we lose one of those celebrations, that is a shame because it means that we are um, taking away one of the few things that, as a country, we mark. But at the same time, given the history of, of Bonfire Night, of Guy Fawkes Day, maybe it is a, a positive thing. And this isn't just a royalist versus republican debate. Uh, for those of you who are listening internationally and maybe don't know what Bonfire Night is, it commemorates the um, attempted assassination of King James I in 1605 under the old style of dating, 5th of November 1605 under the old style of dating. Um, and there was this big plot known as the Gunpowder Plot that attempted to blow up the Houses of Parliament while King James I was inside. Now, King James I was a Protestant king. Um, he was, of course, King James I of England, and the first combined king of England and Scotland, and he was King James the Sixth of Scotland. Um, and this this plot by this group of of, of um, Catholic plotters was to blow up King James the First and replace him with a Catholic head of state. Um, this time was a very tumultuous one in British religious history, as Catholicism and Protestantism vied for uh, supremacy, I suppose. They vied to be the official state religion. And it it went back and forth, particularly throughout the Tudor period. Uh, I remember studying this in year eight, I think it was. And, and my history teacher described it as a roller coaster, where it would be up into Catholicism and then down into Protestantism and then up into Catholicism and down into Protestantism. And, and it seemed to be that with every new head of state, there would be a switch in denomination. And so, of course, this was taken very, very seriously. This group of, this group of, um, of, of people wanted to have a Catholic head of state. Um, ultimately, the plot was foiled. They didn't get as far as setting off their explosives. Um, the group was tried, and Guy Fawkes became one of the prominent members of the group, one of the well-known members of the group. Um, he was hanged, drawn and quartered, I believe. What then happened, quite interestingly, was um, there was a law passed to make it, to make November the 5th our th Thanksgiving day. So it was called the Observance of the 5th of November Act. Um, it was, it made the 5th of November an annual day of Thanksgiving for the failure of the gunpowder plot. Um, it became known as uh, Gunpowder Treason Day, eventually, and it became the, the biggest celebration uh, in fact, in England. At the time, of course, Christmas wasn't a thing. Christmas 
was outlawed initially by the Puritans, and it never really came back until Charles Dickens popularized it. And so the 5th of November became the, the, the leading celebration in England. And um, it started to be marked with the burning of effigies on bonfires. Um, quite often, it carried a very anti-Catholic sentiment as the effigies that were burnt were of the Pope. And so it became this day of, of prejudice against Catholicism. Um, by the end of the 18th century, so by the end of the 18, uh, the 1700s, I'm sorry, um, we saw this tradition of children begging for money uh, using their, their effigies of Guy Fawkes, and, and Penny for the Guy became a thing. And that's something that I've not seen for a very, very long time. Again, I remember being younger and even walking through our high street. I live in a, in a relatively small town, but walking through our high street, we would see two or three people asking for pennies for the guy. And they were there with their effigies. Um, and they would later take those effigies to be burnt on a bonfire. But I've not, um, I've not, seen, I've not seen anybody with a, with a guy effigy for a long, long time. Uh, eventually, the observance of the 5th of November Act was repealed. That was in 1859. Um, and that then kind of, I suppose, led to its decreasing popularity as a day of remembering the events of the gunpowder plot. And it did become this kind of child-centered holiday. So again, we had the children taking their, their guys out and asking for money. We had the the, the the toffee apples and the hot dogs and the burgers and the jacket potatoes and, and the kids' party food started to become very popular. And I don't know, maybe maybe it's the rise of Halloween has done it. Maybe because over the last I'm gonna say over the last 20 years, I think, certainly since since I stopped being a child and and stopped really thinking about it, we've imported Halloween uh, from the US. I mean, Halloween was a thing when I was younger. Um, you know, we used to have makeshift costumes. My favourite things ever were those uh, glow-in-the-dark witch's fingers that you could get. Uh, they were amazing. Um, ten fingers in a pack, and they had kind of these pointed red fingernails at the end, and then they were a, a, an opaque white colour, which glowed green when it went dark. I loved those. And, and I had some some vampire fangs that did the same thing. I don't quite know what I dressed up as, some kind of witch-vampire hybrid. Um, but that was kind of as far as it went. We never did trick-or-treating. Um, we never had parties. We just kind of, it was an excuse to dress up. And I think as as Halloween has become more prominent, um, as, as we kind of imported that from the US, maybe that has diminished the importance of bonfire night because now children don't need that to celebrate you know they don't need to to look forward to the fireworks and the bonfires and and the party food um because six days before they have they they've they've had that i don't know i don't know i also don't know how i feel about it like i said i think it's definitely a good thing that well, it's a good thing that it moved away from the anti-Catholic sentiment anyway. Um, and, you know, maybe we should be eschewing these celebrations that are rooted in prejudice. Uh, maybe it is a good thing that we are 
becoming more, I hate the word tolerant, uh, but that we are becoming more tolerant of, more accepting of people who are different to us. And we are turning around and saying, actually, no, it's, it's not on that we continue to observe this thing that has its roots in, um, in discrimination, in prejudice. But at the same time, it's really sad if we take these things away and don't replace them with anything. Uh, because if we're not careful, we will end up getting rid of our celebrations altogether. So maybe it is time for us to start thinking of of new things that we can commemorate, of new holidays that we can have, of of new new exciting things that we can celebrate um, as these as these older traditions fade away. That's kind of all I wanted to say on on Guy Fawkes Day. Really, um, it would be interesting. Any historians who are listening in. I'm not a historian, I'm a, I'm a classicist. Uh, so I would be interested to hear from any historians who are listening, who, who maybe have some cool tidbits um, about, about Bonfire Night, some, some of those did you know type facts. I like those. Um, so if you do have any, please feel free to text in. If you are listening live on the Podbean app, you can text into the show and I will read your text out on air. I always appreciate that. If you are listening back, then you are free. Or if you are listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anything that is not the Podbean app, please feel free to tweet me. I am at Mr. D. Lester. That's M-R-D-L-E-S-T-E-R, all one word. And I will read out any tweets that I get live on air. Tim has texted in again to suggest Hello Forks. I like it. I like Hello Forks very, very much. Um, Although I wonder whether we would start getting complaints about the idea of, of hallowing Guy Fawkes at that point, about, uh, about making him holy. This episode of Teachers Talk Radio has been made possible with support from Witherslack Group, the UK's leading provider of SEN education and care. They're here to support you, too, through an ever-growing offer of free resources, including webinars, podcasts, articles, and events aimed at supporting teaching professionals like you. Visit their website at www.withaslackgroup.co.uk to find out more. If you're listening to this, then we know we share one thing in common. A passion for the type of outstanding education that every child deserves. That's what makes us the leading provider of specialist education and care. We need people like you to help us achieve even more. With us, you'll be given all the resources and support you need, offered a clear path to career progression, and be rewarded with some of the best salaries and benefits the industry has to offer. We are Witherslack Group. If you'd like to find out more, we'd love to hear from you. Visit www.witherslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers and be part of our future. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The Christian Institute website reports that MPs have backed a push to ensure that state schools in England uphold the legal requirement to teach religious education, which in most cases reflects the centrality of Christianity. MP Martin Vickers led a Westminster debate on the issue and drew attention to the National Association of Teachers of RE 
on the Department for Education 2021 school workforce census. The census revealed that one in five schools did not teach RE at all in year 11, despite being required to do so by law. An average of 10% of schools gave no time to RE in the years 7, 8 or 9. MP Nick Fletcher said that without an understanding of Christianity, it is not possible to understand the foundations of our institutions and laws or British culture. He went on to outline that other religions should be properly recognised in the pre preparation of RE syllabus, but that RE needs to recognise the particular place of Christianity in Great Britain. Mr Fletcher cited other demands placed on schools and failures by Ofsted to hold schools to account as the reason for letting RE slip. In response, Nick Gibb, a minister in the DfE, said all mainstream state-funded schools are required to teach RE. Schools that are not are acting unlawfully or are in breach of their funding agreement. He also added that collective worship was an important part of school life. Mr Gibb further reiterated the government's commitment to mandatory collective worship and RE, but also a parent's right to withdraw their children from the subject. Earlier this year, a judge ruled that exclusively Christian RE lessons in Northern Irish primary schools is unlawful after a legal challenge was launched. The decision was, is being appealed as it dismissed the parent's right to withdraw their child from these lessons. In Lincoln, the Investigate Learning team at Lincoln Castle have been recognised for the outstanding learning programme they offer schools, colleges and universities. The Sandford Award recognises museums, galleries and historic buildings that offer the very best programmes aligned with the national curriculum. This year, the castle has welcomed around 8,000 pupils and students, teaching them about the medieval monument's history. The Sandford Awards lead assessor described the insight the programme offers as unique and compelling. The programme covers a series of locally and nationally significant history, ranging from the medieval world and Magna Carta to the treatment of prisoners in Victorian England, bringing it vividly to life in a way that resonates with learners. In a recent news report on Teachers Talk Radio, we covered the Global World Skills Competition, which is taking place in various countries across the globe. This past week, the UK was hosting for the first time in over 10 years. Competitors have travelled from around the world to compete in aircraft maintenance and manufacturing in Cardiff and Wrexham. Finalists had the opportunity to visit various places of interest in the local areas, including countryside, museums and an old coal mine. These young competitors have been training for the last three years to win medals and showing off their skills. The UK entrants feature homegrown Welsh talent with George Denman from Swansea telling FE Week how he hopes competing in world skills will be a huge boost to his career because it teaches key skills like coping under pressure, working as a team and time management. Finally, new research reveals the impact of accent on social mobility. The latest report from Accent Bias in Britain project, led by Queen Mary University London's Professor Deviana Sharma, reveals that more than a quarter of senior professionals from working class backgrounds have been singled out in the workplace for their accent. The project examines the impact that someone's accent has on their journey through education and into the workplace. Professor Sharma says the research shows that accent-based discrimination actively disadvantages certain groups at key points. This creates a negative cycle reinforcing anxiety and marginalisation. The report recommends that action should be taken to diversify the workplace to ensure a range of accents is prevalent in organisations. 
Further details of the report can be found on the Queen Mary University of London website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. It's fascinating to me um, how different people can be because I get myself really stressed making sure that I'm covering everything on the syllabi for my my various different subjects um you know because each language that i teach is slightly different classics is is slightly different from modern languages latin is slightly different to classics and so i i spend a lot of time going back over and double checking my syllabi to make sure that i am in fact covering everything and and so i find it fascinating that there are schools out there that will just not teach an entire subject that are not teaching re uh, despite the fact that the law tells them that they have to. Um, and I understand that there are a, a host of reasons why, um, from funding uh, through to time, through to uh, teacher availability, all sorts of things. Um, I just, I do find it really interesting how teachers are not this homogenous group of people. We're not all the same. Um, we are probably one of the most diverse professions out there purely because people from a whole host of backgrounds are drawn into teaching. And so, you know, while I'm sitting stressing about whether I have covered uh, exactly every single correct possible conjugation of every single possible irregular verb, uh, I'm worrying about that. There are people who don't get as caught up in, in the, the, the minutia as, as I do. And, you know, I recognise, I'm, I'm quite impressed with this segue. Uh, not going to lie, I'm impressed with myself coming up with this. I recognise that a lot of, of my own stress does come from my my anxiety. Um, I was, uh, as as friends of the show will know, I was diagnosed with um, clinical depression and anxiety last September. Um, and I've kind of been, you know, I've been through the therapies, I'm, I'm doing the medication and all of that sort of thing. And so it is through therapy, I've realized that it is my anxiety that quite often keeps me so um, detail-oriented when it comes to my teaching and, and double-checking that I have done absolutely everything I'm supposed to have done um, because my anxiety tells me that if I'm the reason a student hasn't learned something that will come up on the exam, then that makes me the reason that uh, that they might not get the grade they need for whatever they're going to, to move on to. Um, and, you know, that's that's fine. That's just how my brain is. And I understand that that's how my brain is. But one of the things that I have been doing um, since my diagnosis was keeping an eye on my own attitudes around other people and making sure, just being very mindful of how I'm talking to adults um, you know, because we are all very good at masking we're around children. Um, a few weeks ago, beginning of September, uh, Teresa Doherty and I talked about this. Teresa came on my show to talk about how she um, dealt with being a primary school teacher while being the mother of a chronically ill child. Um, it's Teresa's story is really interesting, so please do go back and listen to, to that show if you haven't heard it. And we talked about how she would consciously make sure that the children didn't know she was having a bad day. The children um, didn't know the extent to which things were were going on with with Kelsey, um, because they don't have to. 
And, and I think as a profession, we are very good at that. We are very good at making sure that the children get the experience that they deserve, that they have come for, um, regardless of what we've got going on at home. But we don't always do that around other adults. And in some cases, that's a very positive thing. So in my interview with her, Teresa raised the very good point of a lot of her colleagues are in fact her friends, um, as, as happens in workplaces because you are around the same people for 10, 11, 12 hours a day. So it is important to, to have actual friends in your workplace. And so of course, if you have friends, then when they ask you, how are you doing? You want to answer that honestly. But of course, at the same time, you don't want to be a drain on other people. Um, the, the head teacher of my school, in fact, likes to start his beginning of the year assembly with the metaphor of be a radiator and not a drain, which I quite like. Um, you know, make sure that you are giving, make sure that you are positive, make sure that you are not taking uh, more from other people than, than you need to. So I've been very mindful, um, both at work and in my personal life, of how I relate to other people and making sure that if I am going through a bad patch, if I am uh, not very well is is how I, I now describe it because that is the the honest truth behind it. You know, if I'm having a depressive episode, if I'm having an anxious episode, I'm not very well in the same way that if um, I've got a sore throat and a headache, I'm not very well. And, and I do I do keep an eye on that because I don't want to be a drain on on other people. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to be toxically positive because toxic positivity can detract from being authentic, from being real, because um, negativity, feeling rubbish is a part of everyday life. It just is. As people, we feel these things sometimes. And I think it's really important for us to try and and strike that balance between being a drain and being an overly hot radiator, being the kind of radiator that needs to be turned down at the wall because we are giving too much, because we are too positive, even when the situation doesn't call for it. There are, according to, to psychologists, there are three types of complaining. Uh, and I find this really interesting. Uh, the most common, and the one that I think we all engage with, probably on a daily basis, if we're honest about our interactions, not just with ourselves, but with other people, um, is venting. And, and venting is that you identify a problem and you want to get it off your chest. You might want a solution, you might not want a solution but you want to get the the problem out of your head and you do that by talking to somebody about it then there's problem solving where you identify a problem and you relay that to somebody with the hope that they will help you to solve it and then there's what psychologists call ruminating which is is dwelling on the problem. It's becoming stuck in this obsessive spiral that focuses on a single problem um, or maybe a group of problems that coalesce into one issue. 
And that problem may or may not be solvable, but when you are ruminating, you're actually not making an effort to solve it. And perhaps you don't want it to be solved um, for reasons that, that we will explore throughout the show. So those are the three types of complaint, venting, problem solving, and ruminating, dwelling. Now, if I'm very honest about myself, I feel like venting is the, the type of complaint that I personally do the most. Then ruminating, and again, where I've been seeking help for my depression, it's been quite interesting to to figure out how much of my thought cycle is in fact ruminating and beginning to, to learn strategies to break me out of, out of that cycle that it can become. And problem solving is probably the, the last complaint uh, type that I engage in, normally because I would like to try and solve the problem myself. So if I have a problem that I think can be solved, complaining about that problem to somebody else would be my last uh, my last case scenario because I would like to have attempted to solve that problem myself first. But different people um, will have different um, different proportions of those three types of complaints. But I thought it was very interesting because when we complain, uh, when something has gone wrong, we quite often don't think about what that complaint is achieving. So let's say you are on your way to work, you've left as you do at quarter to eight in the morning uh, because your school is only 15 minutes away by car, you get stuck in traffic. And so in fact, you don't arrive until half past eight. And so you just complain about that. You probably won't stop and think, okay, what type of complaint am I engaging in right now? Um, you're probably venting because let's be honest, that's not a problem that can be solved. Um, you live relatively close to work. You couldn't have predicted that there would be an overwhelming amount of traffic. If you were to start leaving earlier, that wouldn't necessarily stop you getting stuck in traffic because this hasn't been a problem before. Um, and as long as you then kind of don't let it ruin the rest of your day, you're not ruminating on that. You will just be a bit annoyed that, uh, that you haven't got enough time to do photocopying. So you probably are just venting about it, but that's not something that we stop and, and dissect, really. Sometimes we do, if you know that you're going to complain before you complain, um, because I've done that, I've, I've gone into my, my poor head of department's classroom and said, look, I just need five minutes to vent and then I'm done. Um, and, and he's given me that time. But quite often we don't because we just launch into our complaints because we need to get it off our chest. Uh, good morning, Ennio, listening in from Italy. It is very nice to have you here. Thank you for, for joining us today. So yeah, we all complain and we all indulge in those three types of complaint. But some people do complain more than others. Um, and I don't feel that that is a judgment call. Um, I don't think that's me being judgmental, but please do call me out if you think I am. Um, I think it is just a fact in, in the same way that, that everybody is different. Some people are more prone to complaining than others. And according to, uh, to psychologist Robert Biswas Diener, there is a complete threshold that we all have. So there is this 
this maximum amount of stuff that we can tolerate before we start to grumble. And this then explains why some people are more likely to complain than others, because some people will just have a lower complaint threshold than others, in the same way that we all have different pain thresholds, that we all have, you know, a, a different level of pain that we can talk, physical pain that we can tolerate before we will say something. Um, psychologists don't know what um, contributes towards that that complaint threshold. It's something that is still being explored. It is from my reading. I'm not a psychologist, so if anybody is listening in and knows more about this than I do, please do, uh, please do text in and let me know. Um, but from what I can gather, there is a lot of research going into this um, because it is becoming an increasingly interesting topic for psychologists. But the current leading theory is the one of locus of control. So locus of control refers to how much control a person feels they have in any given situation. And the less control you feel you have, the more likely you are to complain. So in, in Robert Biswastina's article that I read, he gave the example of a misplaced suitcase. So if an airline misplaces your suitcase, he says, you are more likely to lodge a complaint uh, because you feel that letting them know the problem will help to solve it. So in that case, you are engaging in um, problem solving. You know that you can't do anything about it. You can't physically go and find your suitcase. So you are complaining about it to somebody who can go and do that. Whereas if there is a problem that over which you do have control, you are less likely to complain because, like I said when I was um, exploring my types of complaint breakdown, you probably will just go out and solve it. Because actually, frankly, it's less effort to solve a problem than it is to complain about it. So if, um, for example, a teaching technique that everybody on Twitter is saying the best technique ever isn't working for my class, I can either take to Twitter and complain about that, or I can just stop doing it and find another technique that will work for my class. And ultimately, that's what I'm going to do, because I'm going to have to do that anyway, unless I keep using something that isn't working, which would be ridiculous. And on top of that, I'm using my energy to go onto Twitter and complain. So it is, in, in many cases, if your problem is solvable by you, it's easier to do that than it is to complain, and so we are less likely to complain. But um, psychologists say there might be other personal factors involved in that um, that complaint threshold, uh, such as your tolerance for conflict. Uh, I personally have a very low tolerance for conflict. That's something that I know about myself. Um, I don't like to have actual arguments with people. I will, um, but I don't like it. And I know that I feel rubbish about it afterwards. So I am quite conflict avoidant as a person. And so I, again, I will likely vent about something because 
I am less likely to get into a conversation with somebody that might in turn hurt their feelings if I'm just venting versus if I am problem solving with somebody else because I'm going to have to turn around and say, actually, no, that won't work because. So because I am conflict avoidant personally, I am probably less likely to complain. Whereas somebody who actually doesn't mind conflict, um, who is quite happy to engage in, in conflicting behaviour if they think it's going to solve their problem, they might be more likely to complain because they don't have that same reaction to it. Um, age apparently comes into play when it comes to this complaint threshold. Um, I don't know, the, the, the article that I read didn't explain whether it thought um, older or younger people were more likely to complain. Um, I think I've become more likely to complain as I've gotten older. Um, I think when I was younger, particularly in a professional capacity, capacity, when I was an NQT, a newly qualified teacher, I was less likely to complain about something because I assumed that everybody else knew better than I did. Um, I went into a school as an NQT where the, the second most recently qualified person uh, the one who was like the newbie before me, had been teaching for two years already. Uh, and then there was a gap above her, and that was something like five years, and then there was another gap above her, and, and everybody was was infinitely more experienced than me. So I just assumed that if I had a problem, it was because I was new and didn't really know what I was doing. And so I took everybody else's advice on board. Uh, whereas as I've got older, and as I've become more confident as a teacher, as I've become more confident in myself as a teacher, uh, I probably am more likely to complain about things because I am more likely to have that self-assurance of, no, actually, I do know what I'm doing and what I'm doing isn't getting the result that I want. And so there's something wrong that I need to raise with somebody. Uh, there's also the desire to present oneself positively. And so... This, this is something I spent a long time thinking about. Um, again, particularly when I'm thinking about my own engagement with my own thought processes. Because like I said at the, like I said about 10 minutes ago, I don't want to be a drain on other people. I don't, I don't think that's fair. Um, particularly in a workplace, because my colleagues have no choice but to be around me. Um, because we are all hired by the same person. We didn't choose to be together. Um, we just happened to be in the same place. And and so I don't want them to come into work and feel rubbish just because I feel rubbish. So I want to present myself positively um, so that I am not draining them of their energy. I also want to present myself positively uh, because I want to be thought of as a professional. Um, back in August, I did a show on teacher self-esteem. <clears throat> oh, excuse me, frog in my throat. Um, I did a show on teacher self-esteem and we looked at um, how teachers choose to present themselves and, and, and the different hats that we put on, the different costumes that we wear, the different masks that we wear in order to present ourselves in different ways as teachers. And most of us as teachers want to be thought as being professional. We want to be thought of as being in control. We want to be thought of positively. And for reasons that, uh, that we'll explore a little bit later on, 
being a, in air quotes, positive person helps you to do that. Because if you are seen to be a problem solver, if you are seen to be optimistic, if you are seen to see the good in everything, then people will assume that you are a positive person. Of course, that can be a mask because, as we've said, we go into our classrooms and do that. We go into our classrooms and um, radiate positivity because we're not going to take our bad day out on the kids that we're teaching. And we then might also do that in the staff room so that we are seen as being positive. An article in the Journal of Clinical Psychology uh, that was written by Robin Kowalski argued that people also complain to reduce the discomfort of their reality not matching their expectation. So this was interestingly something that I touched on in that teacher self-esteem, teacher identity show, because self-esteem, as, as I discussed in, in that show, is the gap between our ideal self and how we perceive ourselves currently. And the smaller that gap, the, the higher your self-esteem. And we've got the same sort of thing here. If that gap between how you think something should be and how something is, is too wide, then you are more likely to complain about it. And again, this was something that, um, that I talked about in therapy because my therapist pointed out that I do have almost a my way or the highway mentality um, um, among certain things. And, and so there were some things that I talked with her about that had made me stressed, that made me anxious, that had added to a, a negative spiral that I was having, which were not actually based in any kind of reality, but were based in the fact that people were not behaving in a way that I thought they should. They were not behaving in a way that I thought was becoming of a teacher. And so because that gap between what I thought should happen and what was actually happening was quite wide, I complained about it to my therapist, bless her. Um, and so at that point, kind of talking to her about that and, and, and talking through that with her, I realised that it was actually unfair of me to complain about these things because what I was doing or the problem that I was having was in fact twofold. Because first of all, I was assuming that my way was the correct way. And that's quite conceited, really. And I don't like to be conceited. And I was also creating these rules for other people that I wasn't telling them. And that I was then getting annoyed that they weren't following. And and it occurred to me, first of all, who am I to create rules for how other people should live their lives? Who am I to define what it is to be a professional? I can define that for myself. And that's absolutely fine because we all lead the lives that we think we should be leading. But I don't have the right to tell somebody else how they should be leading their life. And... Even if it were true that I could do that without telling them what rules they should follow 
I can't expect them to know. In the same way that I can't expect my classroom of kids to know what my expectations as a teacher are unless I tell them. So I was creating all of these unfair scenarios for these people who didn't even know they were engaged in this scenario and then complaining about it. Now, of course, not everything is as extreme, perhaps, as that is, you know, because, again, I am I am bringing in sort of my illness here. I am bringing in the fact that, um, you know, my neurons misfire with my depression. And, and so that's a whole chemical thing. But it is true that one of the things that we vent about, one of the things that we complain about is what we think should happen not happening. You leave your house at 7.45 in the morning, you think you will get there at 8, and you've then planned to do your photocopying and do that last little bit of English marking that you need to do before you have to go out and meet meet the children on the playground at 8.30. And in fact, that doesn't happen because you get stuck in traffic and you get there at 8.30, and so then you vent about it because of that big gap between... Um, the reality of your situation not matching your expectation. And I don't actually know what to do about that, <laughs> to be honest. Um, short of, of lowering expectations so that you're not disappointed, which um, anybody who has ever watched a sitcom will know is not a good idea because that is a recurring plot line on just about every sitcom I've ever seen. Um, and I think the point of those episodes is to tell us that that's not a good idea. I actually don't know what we can do about that. I really don't. So if anybody does have any any solutions, please do text in, um, because my personal life would benefit greatly from that. <laughs> but if you then if you then vent about that gap to a a a friend to a colleague, nothing actually changes. Because, again, venting doesn't necessarily look for change. Venting is just about getting it off of your chest. But you are validated. Somebody else will say, oh, I know that traffic is awful. And so I haven't been able to do my last minute marking either. Or somebody will say, oh, I'm, I'm really sorry that that happened to you. That's rubbish. And your feelings are then validated. Because none of us like to feel bad. None of us like to to be uncomfortable, but it's it is nice when somebody says, actually, it's OK that you feel that way and they validate those feelings. They validate those experiences. Ilana Simons, uh, Dr. Ilana, Ilana Simons, Ph.D., wrote in Psychology Today that complaining can absolve us of blame or responsibility. Uh, when we complain, Ilana explained, we um, we shirk our accountability for certain issues and we dodge expectations that we should be able to make improvements. Because what we're doing when we're complaining is we're saying, I had no power. It kind of comes back to that um, uh, that locus of control earlier. Because if we had had some power, then we'd have been able to solve a situation. Or we might think highly enough of ourselves that we would say, oh, if I were in control, that wouldn't have happened. 
Whereas if we complain about something going wrong, what we're doing is saying to other people, I didn't have control over this. And so I then can't be responsible for what comes of it. And again, I think about this quite a lot when it comes to trips and visits. I think we've all been there where we've either been the organiser of a trip and had other teachers complaining to us about kids missing their lessons. Or where we've had half of a class out on the trip and have then complained about them going off on this trip. And I think what we're doing is we are raising a valid concern of they are missing this portion of our teaching. But by complaining about it, what we're doing is saying, look, I'm not happy and I cannot be held responsible if this thing that I'm teaching today comes up on their exam and the student hasn't caught up and so doesn't know it. We're preempting any complaint that we might have about ourselves so that we don't have to take any responsibility for it later. Um, again, I think that is both a, a positive and a negative. I think it's a positive because we shouldn't take responsibility for things over which we have no control. And as teachers, we are quite good at taking responsibility for things over which we have no control. We are quite often expected to take responsibility over things for which we have no control. I always find it quite interesting um, within the first few weeks of the autumn term when heads of departments at my senior school get called in to discuss GCSE and A-level results with the head and with the, the deputy head in charge of academics because the assumption is that we as the teachers actually had control over the grades that our students got, that not the assumption of my head or the deputy head academic, just to be clear, that's not the assumption that they have going into those meetings. But the fact that the meetings happen at all and that we discuss these grades have that assumption. When people post on Twitter about their um, pass rate or when, or when we use the pass rate to sell our subject, we are taking some kind of control over those results because we are saying I helped these students to achieve these results. I got these results for, for these kids. And so I can do that for you as well. That's why you should do my subject. But we don't sit those exams. And I said this when the, I talked about um, uh, results day, you know, I pointed out I didn't get 21 Chinese A-levels this last summer, my students all got an A-level. They weren't my results, they are their results. And so we are expected in our profession to, to take responsibility, not just for teaching, but also for learning. And we, we internalise that expectation. We internalise the idea that we are responsible for the whole of the um, the whole of the process and of course that then means that we start complaining in order to absolve ourselves responsibility down the line we will start saying oh yeah but they missed my lesson on amino acids and so if they don't catch up then 
they won't be able to answer that question in the exam and that's why I don't think they should go on this trip. Dr Guy Winch says that complaining also helps for social cohesion. And again, I think that any organisation that has a culture, uh, so, you know, teaching culture, office culture, um, stage culture from my time as an actor, I think anything that has a culture will have a, a set of complaints or will have complaining as, as part of that culture because it helps to create this social cohesion. So Dr. Guy Winch, who is a New York psychologist said, complaints can make us feel like we connect with someone because we have a mutual dis dissatisfaction about something. Um, this was picked up by William Berry, um, who said that when somebody else recognizes your pain, um, which is expressed by complaining, and they validate that experience, that feels good and you connect with that person. Carl Rogers then, who was a humanistic, humanistic theorist, sorry, picked up on that again and said that believing, he believed that being heard was incredibly powerful, that human beings need to feel like we are being heard and that creates a connection. And complaining puts you in a position where you are more likely to be heard than being positive. Because if you complain about something, somebody is either going to express their mutual dissatisfaction and complain with you, or try and proffer a solution. And so you've got that engagement with somebody. Whereas if you're being positive, then somebody that there is less of an in to conversation there. It's easier for somebody to say, oh, that's nice. If you come out and say, oh, my lesson with my, my year sixes went really, really well. It's easier for somebody to say, oh, that's nice. And then move on with a topic than if you come out and said, oh, my lesson with my year sixes went really badly. And then the, the, the person you're talking to says, oh, that's really rubbish for you and then moves on. Complaints are more likely to be indulged. They are more likely to become a topic of conversation than anything positive. So it does help for that social cohesion. Um, it helps for that bonding. So Tina Gilbertson, who is a psychotherapist and wrote the book Constructive Wallowing, says, we're not very good at expressing our feelings as a society. And so it's pretty common to complain in order to express a feeling. And I've been reflecting on that as a linguist, um, because in English, the, the, the question, how are you, is very often not an actual question. Um, it's just a, a placeholder. It's a conversation opener. It's something that you say. And so in English, particularly in British English within the UK, the correct response to how are you is something like I'm fine or can't complain or I'm all right. Um, you know, anything that doesn't actually answer the question, because we understand that it's not a real question unless you are talking to a friend of yours. Whereas if I take French 
for example, the equivalent question, Sava, how are you, is an actual question. You don't go into a French supermarket and ask that question because it's seen as quite rude. Um, <laughs> I did it once. In fact, the last time I was in France, I did it because as a French teacher, uh, part of my, my opening classroom routine is saying to each of my kids, bonjour, ça va? Hello, how are you? To get them used to conversation and to teach them different ways of answering that question. So this last day that I was in France, I was very, very tired because I was the only French speaker on the trip. So I was doing all of the talking, all of the interpreting. And my brain had just kind of switched off by the last day. We were driving back to the airport. We'd stopped off at a service station. There was a lady behind the counter. She said, bonjour, monsieur, because French shopkeepers are very polite. They will always greet you and say hello. And just kind of, I was on autopilot. So I just, I just replied, bonjour, ça va? Um, and the look of horror that fell on this woman's face was amazing. Um, because she wasn't expecting it, it's not part of culture and it's a legitimate question. She felt pressured to answer that question. And why should she? I don't know her. <laughs> so why should she tell me how she is? So luckily I caught myself and I managed to, to apologise and explain, you know, that I was a French teacher and I had this routine in my class and I'm tired and wasn't thinking. And, and we, we had a laugh about it. But But that question, how are you? in English is not a real question. And, and I think that's true of all Englishes. Um, certainly in my experience of US English, it holds true. Uh, if we've got any speakers of Australian English, I would be interested to know if it were true for you as well. But I'm gonna go out on a limb and make the assertion that in English, the question, how are you, is not a legitimate question. It's just another way of saying hello. And so that means that as in native English speaking societies, we don't really have a lot of opportunities to express our feelings because the only people who are really going to ask you the legitimate question, how are you, are your friends who are probably aware of how you are anyway because you will have vented to them. You will have talked about how you're doing. So Tina Gilbertson goes on to say that anytime we're sharing any kind of emotional content with somebody, that's a vehicle for bonding. And so we are especially fond of using complaining as a social tool, as a way into creating a connection with somebody. And, and I feel like this is particularly true in teaching because I've noticed in my, in my 16 years, I've noticed that positivity about a lesson that went well or an activity that you enjoyed is quite often interpreted as being boastful or egocentric. I think as a profession, teachers are quite suspicious of people who see themselves as capable teachers. We will look up to the CPD providers who come in and tell us how we should be teaching. And we look up to the people who position themselves on social media as being teaching experts and will quite happily take positivity from them. But from our peers, from just other classroom teachers, I've noticed we tend to be quite suspicious of positivity. And so actually, if you want to fit in amongst your peers as a teacher, I feel it's probably easier to complain than it is to be positive. 
There's also a theory that's called projective identification, which links into all of this. And this is the idea that people react to us in the way that we are reacting to a situation. So if you think about a time that somebody has vented to you about a problem, particularly a common problem, you probably came away from that venting session feeling worse than when you went into it, than when the person approached you. That's what projective identification is. It's this empathy, quite often an extreme empathy with a situation. We're not quite sure why this happens. There are lots of theories about it. Um, some scientists have posited a theory of what they call mirror neurons. And I find this really interesting which is this idea that we have certain neurons in our brain that will mimic the feelings of somebody else. Um, good morning, Haytham. I hope that I've pronounced that correctly. Listening from Libya. Amazing. Amazing. I, I love when we get international listeners. I'm, I'm so happy to hear you, uh, to have you here today. Um, under the theory of evolution, if, if you believe in evolution, this idea of mirror neurons actually makes sense because mood mimicking um, could help towards survival because feeling scared about something because somebody else is feeling scared might help you to escape from this saber-toothed tiger that you hadn't spotted but they had. It can then help to form this social cohesion, this kind of tribe-making if you like, which again can keep you safe. Being in a society keeps you safe because you've got other people who will look out for you. Um, William Berry says that complaining is also a form of ego reinforcement. So William Berry has, has written a lot on the idea of ego. And he says that a lot of what we do is to reinforce a sense of self. Uh, and that is especially true in judgments and gossip. Um, he says that, that whether consciously or not, we often seek to compare ourselves to other people in order to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And again, this comes back to that locus of control, I think. Everything kind of, of feeds into to itself. Um, because by gossiping about somebody else, by attempting to put a negative spin on what somebody else, something somebody else has done, we are taking control over that situation. We are taking control over how somebody else perceives that situation. Uh, William Berry says that people um, seek to make themselves feel better or more important by a downward comparison. Uh, that is comparing themselves to others that are perceived to be worse off in some ways. And so when, for example, you judge government decisions as being ridiculous, you feel more intelligent or more honest than the people who are creating policy. And again, if we think about a lot of the complaints about education secretaries, because we've been through quite a lot um, in the UK lately, the biggest complaint is that they have no teaching experience. And I do think that that is a legitimate complaint. We have people making policy about things that they actually have no professional experience of. Their experience of school is limited to, I went to school. 
And so that is a legitimate complaint. And there is something, there are things that need to be done about that. But what we're also doing is positioning ourselves and saying, because we are in school, we know more about this. We are positioning ourselves as being more intelligent. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, because it is in fact true. We do have that lived experience. But would we feel the same way if, for example, we had a uh, a, a secretary of education, a minister of education, who had a doctorate in education, but had never taught. Would we still seek to put our lived experience over their higher learning? And I think that would depend on the extent to which we agreed with their policies, because we're going to make the downward comparison if we feel like we could do better. And so if we disagree with what they say, we're going to turn around and say, no, no, sorry, you've got no actual teaching experience. Yes, you've done all this book learning, but I've been in the classroom. I know what it's like at the chalk face. If we do agree with their policy, then we will probably turn around and say, yes, they've done all of the reading. You know, they've done their research. They're aware of the of the journals. And so they do know what they're talking about. And so we are always likely to spin things in a way that that puts us in a positive light. Because what we're doing in that case is saying, I agree with them, or their policies align with my educational values, therefore, I'm quite smart because I agree with this person who is in charge, and I need to elevate them to show that my uh, positioning, my beliefs are correct. Um, Dr. Winch, who I, I referenced earlier, said that complaining can be a way to realign our expectations. So if we complain when that gap between our expectation of reality and actual reality is too wide, by complaining about the reality, it gives us a chance to verbalise what the reality is and readjust that expectation. And this is where toxic positivity can be quite detrimental to us because if we are always seeing the good in something or if we are never acknowledging that something is bad we are never able to realign our expectations and we are never able to go okay my class is not learning in this um fad teaching style that everybody else thinks is is marvelous and so i need to change it what we're actually more likely to do in that case is go, well, okay, my class isn't learning right now, but maybe they will if I stick with it. Because we're not allowing ourselves to see that there might be a problem. During my research for the show, um, the biggest complaint about people who complain, um, which psychologists, uh, who psychologists dub chronic complainers, um, is that they don't seek a resolution to the problem. It's lots of venting and lots of ruminating, but not very much problem solving. And again, that is also where toxic positivity can be an issue, because if you're just relentlessly positive about everything and you're not identifying that there are problems, you're not trying to solve them. You're the ostrich sticking his or her or their head in the sand. Where complaints can become toxic is when they are used to manipulate either another person 
or the society in which you are. So complaints can be used as a way to exercise power and influence over perception. Um, the research shows that especially within organisations where there is a hierarchy, there can be these political games that are played and complaints can then be used strategically in order to get support from other people. And that's not actually looking for validation. That's not actually wanting resolution to problems. That's manipulating the people that you are complaining to in order to get them on your side. So if two people go out for the same job, for example, one of them gets it, the other doesn't. The person who didn't get the job has the choice of saying, OK, I didn't get that job, but I'm going to support the person who did. In fact, I, I will share this from my experience. Um, a couple of years ago, our head of um, prep school MFL retired. Uh, and so I went for the head of prep school MFL position, and so did one of my colleagues. Um, she got the job and I didn't. My choices were to either accept that she got the job and support her as I would always support my head of department, or be bitter about the fact that I didn't get the job and complain and undermine her because maybe I thought I should have got it. As it turns out, I opted for supporting her because she is my colleague, she is my friend. I respect her very much as a teacher. I've actually got no reason to undermine her other than what would have been my own jealousy and bitterness about not getting the job. I didn't feel particularly bitter about not getting it. I was pleased for her that she got it. And she is a good friend of mine. So I, I'm glad that I get to be involved in supporting her. And I'm glad that um, my friend got a promotion. I don't want to spend my time bad-mouthing her and trying to get other people on my side and saying, oh, isn't it awful that I didn't get the, the head of department? Because I don't want to do my friends that disservice. And she wouldn't be my friend if I didn't like her. So those are the ways that we can react to um, organisational politics. And unfortunately, there are people who might choose the second option and who might try to undermine the person who got the job over them because they think that it will get them support. Because maybe they think that if they can get other people on their side, they might get the job when the other person, if the other person chooses to move on. Related to this is the idea of complaining as attention seeking. So psychologists suggest that chronic complaining starts early in life and can be a means of gaining visibility and establishing rapport within the family structure. And there has been some research that suggests that those of us who are more likely to complain probably had our complaining validated as children, and we saw that as a way of getting attention in the family that we didn't feel we were getting elsewhere, and so we then bring those same behaviours into the workplace. 
They become these deeply ingrained patterns of behaviours that can then become part of our identity. Um, this could explain why chronic complainers react poorly to advice or problem solving. It's why they are more likely to vent or ruminate than problem solve, because problem solving actually would solve the issue that they were having. It would take away the reason to complain and would actually threaten their sense of self, because a lot of the sense of self is tied up in, I don't like this and so I'm going to complain about it, and getting that validation. And so that does mean that if we are chronic complainers, we need to think about that. We need to think about our sense of self. We need to think about our locus of identity and figure out why we allow ourselves to be defined as complainers and what we might be able to do to get that same validation elsewhere. But it also means that if you work with or are friends with a chronic complainer, you need to handle them carefully because you don't want to disrupt their sense of self. You don't want to make them feel badly. Going, up, going to somebody who is a chronic complainer, who identifies as a complainer and saying, oh, you're overreacting, you're being ridiculous, is more than just downplaying their situation. It's actually downplaying their whole sense of self because they may internalize that as they are a ridiculous person because they complain. So there is some sensitive handling to be done around people who complain. Um, and I think, you know, we all complain, like I said, from time to time. And I think those when we are complaining, we would like to be handled sensitively. And so it is important for us to, to react in that same way. A lot of the, the research on complaint that I've done uh, over the past week planning the show circles back to this attitude of gratitude um, mindset that has become quite trendy over the past few years in, in all kinds of circles. You know, you get the, the new agey manifestation idea where people will say, I keep my list of gratitude and I manifest what's coming next. You have it in the Christian circles where people will say, I am grateful for what God has given me and I will listen out for uh, what he's sending me next and I will ask him for what I want. Um, evangelical prosperity gospel will say that, you know, I'm grateful for what I have because all of this positive stuff in my life is is God's blessing on me and showing that, that God is a is responding positively to me. The scientific studies do in fact show that people who practice mindful gratitude do generally have a better quality of life, probably because their rumination is on things that are positive that they can control rather than things that are negative that they can't control. I'm not sure it's necessarily about being grateful. I think it's just about recognising the positive things that there are in your life recognizing the people whose company you enjoy, recognizing the TV shows that you like to watch, recognizing that you are in a well-lit, warm home. But having an attitude of gratitude 
can become problematic if you make that your entire personality. So again, that's where toxic positivity comes into play. Because if you are grateful for everything, it can discourage you from handling actual problems because you can no rec longer recognize anything as being a problem because you are trying to see the good in everything. Perpetual positivity, toxic positivity can also be emotional labor. So research into the topic of emotional labor shows that asking people to be positive when they are not is in fact resource draining for them. So if I, as a toxically positive person, approach you as someone who is complaining to me and I say, oh, you should stop complaining, you know, you should look on the bright side, you should be grateful, that actually is a lot of work on the part of the person who is complaining because they have to get over the fact that they want to complain and jump that hurdle. They have to either deal with or quash the feelings that they have leading them to complaint, and then they have to seek out something to be grateful for, something to be positive about. So I feel, as I've said a couple of times in the course of the show, it's all about this balance. People need to be real, people need to be authentic. Particularly as teachers, we need to be authentic because we need to encourage our students to be authentic. Um, according to David M. Long, who is Assistant Professor of Organisational Behaviour at the College of William and Mary, um, a better approach than toxic positivity trying to get people to look on the bright side might be to engage complainers in their conversation and turn the conversation around to problem solving. So help them to break the ruminating cycle, help them to break the venting cycle, and look for a solution. Now that's not always the answer. Um, there, are, there are the jokes, there are the sexist stereotypes of women and men not being able to communicate properly because women want to vent about a problem and men want to solve it. So, you know, you get the, the cartoons, you get the memes of um, a woman complaining to her husband and her husband being frustrated by the complaint because she's not doing anything that he's suggesting to try and solve it. And that this then becomes friction in their relationship. So we do need to keep in mind that not all complaining requires resolution because some complaining is just venting. But as the person who is complaining, we also have to wonder whether the positive outcome of us venting and getting it off of our chest outweighs the negative outcome of draining the person that we are venting to of their emotional resources, of, of activating their mirror neurons and making them feel the same way that we do. We must keep in mind that stress is physically damaging to the brain. So the hippocampus is the region of your brain that is responsible for explicit declarative memory. So the hippocampus is where your facts are stored. So your friends' names, their addresses. It's also where the knowledge that you know something is stored. So
did not mean to play my closing music, closing music just then, but I think that underlined. Stop. 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 I. <laughs> I'm not finished. That was my own fault. I scratched my head and hit a button on my headphones, which decided... Which... Okay, let's wait. Let's wait. Let's wait. Are we? I think this is a universe complaining about me complaining. I now don't know. Okay, I honestly at this point don't know what's going on because I've deleted all of my music. There is no reason why it should be repeating. I'm very sorry about that. <laughs> I, Tim texted in to tell me to stop, to stop scratching my head. This is true. I only did it once. And then the music decided it just wanted to repeat. Um, I love technology. I really do. Anyway, as I was saying, before my little musical interlude, um, studies on animals have shown that stress hormones actually damage the hippocampus. And so this has led researchers to believe that this is why um, disorders such as depression have an impact on memory because the, the stress hormones that your body is releasing um, interact with what's going on in your hippocampus and so prevent you from remembering things properly. Um, they found a, a, a study at Washington University in St. Louis found that people with a history of depression actually have uh, smaller hippocampi than those who don't, averaging as much as 15% smaller in volume. Now, of course, as I've said before, depression, anxiety is a, a an illness. It is a physical thing. But actually, we have to remember that if we're complaining to somebody and causing their bodies to release stress hormones, that is an attack on their hippocampus. And that can also help to explain why people feel bad after we have vented to them or why we feel badly after people have vented to us. This whole thing, this whole show, the research for this show has been really interesting for me. Um, because I started by thinking, right, I want to talk about how we can be positive. And then as I did the research, I started thinking, oh, actually, no, we shouldn't be too positive because that's not authentic. That's not real. Maybe complaining is a good thing. 
And then I did the research into complaining and, and I thought, okay, no, complaining is toxic. So what actually are we supposed to do? What is the best way to interact with other people as a person? And ultimately, I don't have an answer to that. I really don't. But I found an interesting statistic, again, by Dr. Winch, who I've cited a couple of times throughout the show. And he says that most people communicate with around an 80% positive to 20% negative ratio. And I feel like if that's the the ratio that people generally have, if that's the ratio that we are naturally drawn to, maybe that's the ratio that is not damaging in either way. Maybe that's the ratio that makes sure that we're not being toxically positive. If you're positive 80% of the time, that means that you're not sticking your head in the sand. You are not ignoring problems that are happening. And then by being 20% negative, you're also not being overwhelmingly negative. You are not damaging other people with your negativity, but you are doing what you and they need to do in order to have the social bonding that complaints and negativity bring without risking their physical health and your own. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope that uh, this was interesting for all of you who joined in. Um, I hope my musical interlude gave you a bit of a chuckle, um, if nothing else. Uh, and I hope that the, the big takeaway, certainly my big takeaway from this, is I'm, I'm going to continue to monitor how I talk to other people. Um, I'm not going to attempt to be res- relentlessly positive because that doesn't help anybody. I am going to give people the space they need to complain. But I am also going to safeguard my own well-being by offering solutions if I think I have them, listening to people's complaints if I think they need it and if I think they're uh, they're valid, and finding ways to say, actually, I can't engage with this with you right now if my well-being is threatened by the complaint more than the complainer is going to get out of it. And maybe that's what we all need to do. Um, I've got a couple of plugs before I finish off the show today. So I'm going to remind you that Eugene is on at five o'clock today and Eugene is going to be talking to us about autistic masking, um, which is a fascinating topic. And I think if you teach students on the autistic spectrum, it would be a useful one for you to watch. Um, I'm also going to do a quick plug for myself. I am speaking at the language show live on Friday afternoon. I'm doing a talk at 3.15 on the benefits of reading literature in translation. So if you are a linguist, if you're a language teacher, if you're a language learner, if you are interested in literature, please do consider buying a ticket to the language show and coming along to my talk. Um, I will then, if you're not interested in that, if languages are not your thing, I do hope that uh, you will join me next Saturday morning for breakfast when I'm going to be looking at Bloom's taxonomy and how we can weave that with the work of Gagné to create what should be quite a robust theory of education. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your week. Now we're going to see whether the music works when I need it to. Bye bye. 
You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.